While the worship team is making its way down, how about if you take out your Bibles, if you have one with you, and and open it up to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 4. We're going to finish Romans chapter 4 today. How big is that? Pretty excited. If you're new to New Hope, we started uh, back in June in studying the book of Romans, and so um, in, on December 11th, we started chapter 4, so this is kind of like a climax here for us. Um, before we get into the, into the uh, passage and, and studying the text this morning, I want to catch up on a few details related to our building fund and, and the Moving Forward campaign. Um, for the benefit of those who haven't been here recently, we, we uh, launched a building campaign fund back in the first weekend in December called Moving Forward. And some details I want to catch up on in relation to that. Uh, first of all, if you're making out gifts to the church, uh, Gene Post, our finance director, has requested that when you do that, that you would indicate on your checks or maybe on the envelope that it's for the building fund. Um, you can imagine, you know, with hundreds and hundreds of people, um, she doesn't always know specifically where the, the money is supposed to go unless you tell her. So if it's going to the building fund, make sure you check that on the envelope, and that will help her a lot. Um, In the last couple weeks, we formed a uh, building planning team. Gary likes to call it the BPT, so I'll refer to it that way. So the BPT has been formed, and this particular team has been tasked with some responsibilities to begin interviews of architects. And so um, over a period of the last few weeks, maybe in the last month, They've been interviewing and talking with various architects, and when they arrive at one that they would like to make a recommendation on, we'll let you know, and they will recommend that group to the elders. Um, Not spending any money yet, um, because we're working on the fundraising portion, but getting everything in order, and that's the job of the BPT, is to kind of walk along the process so that when we're we're ready to launch and build, um, we'll have things in place. So speaking of the the money in particular, I want to tell you who the BPT is that uh, um, you know. Um, Dave Armstrong is serving on that team, and Lynn Vandeventer, and Mike Brister is going to chair that team, and Brad Sharp, and Gary Post, and Scott Wieland, and I don't think I've forgotten anybody. Dave, Lynn, Mike, Gary, Brad, Chat. Yep, got them all. Okay. Now, as far as the funding, where we're at with that, um, we are eight weeks this weekend into the funding campaign, and to this point, as of last weekend, $2,352,000 have been pledged towards the building fund. So that's a big deal, right? That's a, a, yep, that's worth applauding and celebrating. Um, in, in relation to that, uh, this is, I think, even a bigger deal. Um, already, $909,000 has come in towards the building fund in cash. So that, that's huge, right? That, that's just, that's God at work. Um, so, like, if you're going to applaud, there's no golf claps here, right? Okay. So, and, and you're going to get to do a reason to celebrate in just a little bit when I tell you about what we're teaching this weekend and the results of that. But in relation to the money, um, as of last weekend, 103 households, that's not 103 individuals, 103 households made up of multiple people have um, committed pledge cards And those individuals kind of triggered my thinking, and God laid something on my heart. You may have received a letter in your house this week in relation to what I'm about to talk about. Um, As I was thinking about what God has done already, he made it really clear to me that when we gave out the pledge cards, we didn't give everybody an equal opportunity to have a voice. And this is how it occurred to me. Some individuals said, you know, Mark, when I looked at that pledge card and I saw that sample on there of $10,000, 
I'm out, right? And it's like, I, I can't do that. And then I realized uh, we didn't allow a place on the pledge card for people to give comments. And we didn't allow a place on the pledge card for people to say, I'm praying about what's going on. It was all about money, which it was intended to be. It was a pledge card. But I realized there was a miss. And so I sent a letter out this week with a response card in that letter that asks you, um, where are you at on praying for this? Where are you at in the decision process? And if you want to make comments, you'll find a duplicate of that card inside your bulletin this morning. It's in there if you would like to respond in some way to let the leadership team know what you're thinking and what's going on in your head in relation to this. And you can take those and slide them into the offering box today when the service is done if you'd like to. We just would really love to hear your heart and, and to know where you're at on this. A number of individuals have said, I'm, I'm not at the point where I'm ready to make a gift or I'm not at the point where I can make a gift financially, but I am praying so I'm, I'm asking you, if, if that's where you're at, uh, just check one of those boxes and let us know where you're at in the process and what you're thinking. And, and certainly, more than anything, would love to encourage you to be praying about this. At New Hope, regardless of when God allows us to build the building, we're going to keep doing what we've always been doing. Not getting sidetracked, not getting distracted, keep teaching the Word, keep training ourselves in the Word of God, keep bringing people into the kingdom, keep helping people to understand what it is to follow Jesus Christ. So I'm going to ask you to pray this way. God has obviously already blessed us, right? Okay. He's obviously already blessed us. So I'm going to ask you to pray and continue in this prayer that God would continue to pour out his blessings and that he would release the funds in his own timing, in, in the way that he wants it done. We don't want to get ahead of him, do we? We don't want to do that. We want to do it in his timing. So that's how I'm going to ask you to pray. And I'm going to ask you to celebrate with me right now because in the last two services, the, the 915 service and the Saturday night service, seven people prayed to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. Yay. Yeah. So thank you for not golf clapping on that one. That's a pretty big deal. You know, Scripture says that the angels in heaven rejoice when one sinner repents. So I know that there's rejoicing, there's a party in heaven right now for the decisions that people have made. So here's how I want you to pray with me right now. Let's not only pray about what we just talked about with the building fund, but what God's going to do with this passage of Romans chapter 4, verses 22, 23, 24, and 25 to help us understand his nature and character. Would you join me in that? Let's pray together. Father, you are king not only of all the earth, but of all creation, of the universe, of everything that ever exists and will exist. And we declare glory and honor. We can't give you more glory, but we can ascribe it to you. We, we declare you are mighty and you are righteous and you are merciful and you are just and you are loving. For these reasons, we come before you and ask that in the power of your Holy Spirit, you will illuminate our minds as we look into this passage this morning. God, I pray for every single person who's watching online right now, who will watch by recorded video later, every single person who's in this auditorium, that you will align us with your thinking, focus us on your thoughts, keep us from distractions, Father, that we too would check ourselves and who we are in relation to you. Father, we surrender this time right now. We're here. We've given it to you. We ask that you would bless it, that you would use us, use it, and that you would teach us. 
We pray for this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. So we're wrapping up chapter 4, as I mentioned, and maybe if you've been looking at chapter 4, you realize back in December 11th, when we started talking about this, Abraham was mentioned. And for week after week after week after week, Abraham has been mentioned. Why dedicate an entire chapter to Abraham? What's Paul up to? Why is he doing that? He's trying to drive home a point. Because Abraham, we've been told, is specifically mentioned in Scripture because he's saved, he's declared righteous by his faith. Paul's trying to make this point that God is incredibly consistent. He's never changing. He is constant. There's no shadow of turning in him. So he won't treat us differently in 2017 than how he treated Abraham back in the book of Genesis because it's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. There's no shadow of turning in him. Uh, to catch you up, if you weren't here last week, a, a brief summary on this individual Abraham, especially if you're new to church. Abraham and his wife Sarah were very, very old. At age 75, they were promised a son. They had no children, yet God said, you will have a son. However, 24 years later, at age 99, he still finds himself without the promised son. And he's at the point where he realizes he's as good as dead physically. He has nothing left to bring to the table. And his wife Sarah, Scripture says, she's completely barren. So from a reproductive point of view, they are lifeless. From human sexuality standards, they can't do anything to change the circumstances. We ended last week in verse 19 looking at the fact that he contemplated his body. You'll see verse 19 on the screen. It says, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. So from a human perspective, there's no possibility they can have a child. It is absolutely irrational. I have not gone to medical school. I do not have any medical training, but I don't have to have medical training to realize I've never heard of a 99-year-old man fathering a child, let alone by an 89-year-old woman. It just doesn't happen. It is irrational. But as we discovered last week, Jesus said there's nothing impossible with God. Right, church? All things are possible because God goes beyond human capacity. So as we saw, Abraham's left with a choice. Do I believe God and take him at his word? Or do I reject the thinking? Think, That's not possible. It's not going to happen. We're told that he believed God and took him at his word, and so we have verse 22. Let's pick it up there. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Why? Because he believed. The him there is Abraham. Abraham believed. We're told, according to Scripture, that when we exercise the exact same type of faith, when we believe God, God makes a commitment to us. He will credit righteousness to us. Where there was sin, he will take the sin away and put righteousness in its place. So that's good news, isn't it? That, that's the gospel in a nutshell. That's part of it anyways. God takes our believing and he credits that. He, count, he counts that as righteousness. And we spent a lot of time on belief last week. I'm not going to go back there and revisit that again. But here's what Paul's doing. He's writing, it's true. It's absolutely true. Because Abraham believed God, God saw his unwavering faith and he credited it and said, righteous, I declare that about you. Look with me at the exact quote on the screen from Genesis 15, 6. He believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. So it's about Abraham. It's absolutely about that individual. But it's not just about Abraham. There's something bigger going on here. 
There's a reason that it was written down. It's not only about him. It's declared and recorded for you living here in this world today. God had you in mind when he caused Moses to write that down. Now, I don't want you to miss this. Because it's about you, go with me to verse 23. It says, now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him. See, God's thinking about you. God has clarified the verdict. Righteous. I see that one that believes in me. I declare him righteous. So the creator God says it's not declared for him alone. It's in reference to you. Catch this. God told Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, to write down in what is the first book of the Bible about the most ancient things. God said, Moses, I want you to write this down. I want you to write down how I acted in the life of Abraham. Not just for Abraham's benefit but so that it would reverberate across the millennia so that people living in 2017 would know how I interact with humans for the future generations. So look with me. That's really consistent with Scripture. Romans 15 says this. Romans 15.4, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through the perseverance and the encouragement of Scriptures, we might have what, New Hope? Hope. Yeah. God says, I want you to have that hope. So there's things that the Bible says happened in the past in an age that you and I never got to see, in a time that we didn't live in, that impacts how we live today. And we're told that those things are not only for our instructions, they're there for hope. Now we defined hope last week. Biblical hope is that thing that God commits to that has not yet occurred, but it's guaranteed that it will occur. So it hasn't happened yet, but it will happen. So we don't use hope in the way that we do in the English world, thinking, I'm hoping in hope, like I hope the Spartans make it into the tournaments, right? That, that's not what we're talking about. God says this is a guarantee. It just hasn't yet occurred. So in this case, Paul says the words that were laid down in an ancient time are there because they're an important truth. The application of it is not limited to Abraham. It's relevant to everyone. Living in 2017... Every single person sitting in this auditorium today who longs for a new beginning with God, the new beginning that only God can give, is this you today? Are you longing to leave your past behind you and to know what it is to have your sins forgiven and for you to have a guarantee of eternal life with God? God says this is for you. And he reminds us in verse 24, look with me at verse 24, part A. It says, it was for our sake also, but for our sake also to whom it will be credited as those who believe. I just want you to stop with that first part there. Let's focus on just four words. For our sake also. Maybe you've come into church thinking the Bible is old, outdated, ancient, irrelevant. I'm here to tell you the Bible is relevant to your life today. God said thousands of years ago, this is to be written down for those people who are going to be living in 2017. The people who need to be reminded, it is believing that brings them to me. It is by faith. So Paul specifically applies the word our, O-U-R, to a people group. He says it's not just for anybody. It's to us who believe. To those who are believers, it's believers that God credits as righteousness, just as he did to Abraham. Because God never changes, right? He never changes. He's constant. He's always the same. We change, but God does not change. 
So the exact same mercy that he shows to Abraham, he credits to us if we believe him. Are you beginning to see the preeminence of how this relates to the crucifixion and the resurrection? Because we're told in the the remainder of verse 24, this has everything to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look with me at the rest of verse 24. Finish it out. But for our sake also to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. There it is. That's the apex of the Bible. If you've been looking for the theme of the Bible, it's right there in verse 24. God says it's all about this. It's about this. Paul's saying it hinges on this. That belief thing that you and I talked about so much last week. This belief thing that we spent time focusing on. Believing in what? Right there, verse 24. Break it down. We believe in Him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. So the key is, if we believe, that's God's condition for you to inherit eternal life. For you to have forgiveness of your sin. God's condition is that you must believe. Believe what? The resurrection. That God raised Him from the dead. See, the resurrection, if you didn't know it before, hear this. The resurrection is proof that God the Father accepted the sacrifice of God the Son. If you reject the resurrection of Jesus, you're literally saying Jesus' death amounted to nothing. He's just a man who died on the cross. Romans crucified people all the time, constantly. Dying is no big thing. Jesus took on the sin of the world. That's a huge thing. But it would have meant nothing if he wasn't raised again because it's the validation of what God did, that he accepted the payment. So the acceptance of that sacrifice by God means this. You can stand before a holy God because he's taken away your transgressions. You could die this afternoon in a car accident or suddenly from a heart attack. You don't know what tomorrow brings. And you can go to heaven knowing that you can stand before God absolutely righteous because of what Jesus did without any fear whatsoever because he accepted that sacrifice through the resurrection. We'll come back to that thought in just a minute. It it finishes in the verse by saying, to whom it will be credited. Maybe you're looking at that that word will be and, and you're thinking, that sounds, Mark, like future tense. Like maybe that hasn't happened yet. Is that something I have to keep working at? Is that what he's saying here? Well, let's understand how will be is used in this sentence. It's pointing to a future reality. It's pointing to something that hasn't happened yet. In other words, the justification has been given to you right now. You have it, but you haven't actually realized it yet in the sense that you haven't heard God in heaven at the judgment day say, come on in and receive what I've prepared for you. But we're told that's going to happen. However, the promise has been made that you are justified right now. So hear this. Believers in Jesus Christ are justified right now. It happened at the moment that you professed Jesus as your Lord and Savior. He justified you in that moment. And you are told, according to Scripture, that you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. So therefore, that means you have right standing before God right now. It is your present position. However, the consummation of it hasn't been realized yet. So think of it this way. This is like a bride who's been pledged to her groom, but the wedding day has not yet occurred. So the bride, spotless. Picture a bride in her beautiful white wedding dress, but yet only pledged to her future husband. 
Scripture calls the church the bride of Christ. Why? Because there's a pledge, there's a promise, there's a commitment, and that promise is from God, the God who cannot lie, saying, I will bring you in. But the wedding day has not yet occurred, but it will occur because God says it's going to happen. Let's transfer those thoughts over to verse 25, and I want you to be thinking of chapter 1, verse 16. Even if you weren't here back in June, I want you to be thinking of this. Paul says a statement in chapter 1, verse 16. He says, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and we spent a long time, a whole day just talking about that. Let's take that thought, the gospel, what the gospel is, and boil it down into verse 25, because what you find is in 16 simple words, Paul articulates exactly what the gospel is. Verse 25, he, meaning Jesus, who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. I know somebody here just wants to say amen to that, right? Because that's huge stuff. That's a big deal. Verse 25 is monumental. Now let's understand this concept of was delivered over. Because if I ask some of you right now, who delivered him over? Some of us would say, well, clearly Pilate and clearly Rome. I mean, it's capital law. Pilate had the right to crucify him because he was the leader of Rome in Israel. Some of us would say, well, the soldiers did it. And, and then there's this big crowd, and, and then the Jewish leaders that were there, they did it. And then we, some of us might say, well, I wasn't there, but I did it too, because like my sins put him on the cross. And every one of us would be right. We would all be accurate in saying, yeah, everybody played a role in it. However, if you look at the verse, you understand that the crowd and Pilate and Rome did not deliver him because of our transgressions. He was delivered over because of our transgressions, according to what Paul has written here. So this term, delivered up, is something we better understand. I had a lady come to me after the Saturday night service who said her five-year-old, her five-year-old son said to her, Mom, who, who put Jesus on the cross? That Satan did that, right? In, in a sense, Satan was in a role in that as well. He thought he was orchestrating the destruction of Jesus. So we better understand this term, delivered up, because it has a very specific meaning. There's only one Greek word in your notes this morning. You're going to see it on the screen right now. And this particular word is the word delivered, delivered up. It was borrowed from the Greek court system, from the judicial systems. When a convict had been handed over and delivered up to be executed, that's where this term comes from. Someone who's been placed in prison, given over, waiting for their sentence. In this case, a death sentence. How do we understand that? We understand it this way. In Romans chapter 8, and I know many of you love Romans chapter 8, and you can't wait till we get there, and I can't either. But in chapter 8, verse 32, there's a declaration made that's deep, and it's theologically profound, and it tells us exactly who delivered him over. Look with me on the screen. He, meaning God, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. God the Father delivering over God the Son. So the writer goes on to say, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? See, God the Father loves you so much. Maybe you've never heard this before. Hear this. God the Father loves you so much he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up. 
God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, the triune God in eternity beyond our comprehension, made a decision to rescue the entire planet by Jesus coming to earth, taking on the form of man, and dying for the sins of the world. That's why Jesus could say, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly. God the Father delivered him up. Why would he do that? Why would you take one who knew no sin and make him sin on our behalf? Because we're covered with it and he isn't. Verse 25 answers the question. Verse 25 says, there's one reason. It's because of our transgressions. Because of our sin. For our sin, for your sin, for my sin, Jesus died so that you wouldn't have to carry the weight of your sin throughout your life here on earth and take it with you into eternity where God would be forced to condemn you to hell because of the sin on you. God says, I can remove that from you. My son died for your transgression. So praise God that verse 25 doesn't stop that he died with our transgressions. But it goes on to say he was raised because of our justification. See, that's why if you're wondering why people say amen here, that's, that's the reason. He was raised because of our justification. He didn't just die for us. See, the resurrection is the proof of the justification. If you deny the resurrection, you deny the power of God. You deny him in such a way that you make yourself an unbeliever. That's why we're told Abraham believed God, even though he was dead inside. He believed that God is able. So I'm asking you this morning, do you believe God? That he is able to bring life from death. That he can restore what is broken. Because with a dead Jesus, your justification would be impossible. You're still in your sin because the price wouldn't have been paid. So in order to be justified, excuse the weak analogy, but I'll use it anyways. In order for us to be justified, the check had to cash and the check had to clear. The justification is only in place because God accepted the payment by proof through the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead, even though he died with the sins of the world on him, is the proof that God accepted the payment. And so therefore, the check cashed. It is absolutely essential that the payment was made and that it was acceptable. So the evidence of the acceptance of payment is the resurrection of Jesus. Therefore, I can say to you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you are justified justified, justified church. You have no sin to keep you from eternity with God in heaven. Justification you could never achieve on your own as Paul has so eloquently shown us. So you want to boil it down to two really simple thoughts, things you can carry out the door with you? Without his death, there is no basis for your acquittal. You're still guilty. And without his resurrection, there is no proof of the redemption. See, the two are inseparably bound together. An individual after one of the previous services came to me and said he was in the midst of a conversation with an individual who said to him, and I consider myself a Christian, but do I really have to accept the virgin birth of Jesus? Do, do I really have to accept the resurrection? Do I, do I actually have to believe that he fed thousands of people on the beach? 
I can't get beyond that. Well, in no measure is that person a believer then. They're not believing in the power of God. That the power of God is inseparably bound into your salvation. So know this, church. In these two final verses that you're looking at here, verses 24 and 25, these last two verses in chapter 4 are the answer to why we're here today. They're, They're the reason Jesus' people have hope. If you're new to church, you're about to see people pick up elements, the communion elements. We're going to celebrate what Jesus did. We're going to pick up the cup and and pick up the bread because Jesus told us to do it, but it's also a recognition of what he did for us. We want to do this. Here's a thought for you. If in this week ahead of you, two weeks ahead of you, four months ahead of you, you find yourself in a conversation with someone who's trying to make sense of all this, Maybe you're going to the Ravi Zacharias thing this week. I'm going to that myself. There's going to be people there with questions, trying to sort through what does this thing with this relationship with God mean? Maybe you're going to find yourself in the midst of a conversation with someone who has never known what it is to be forgiven of their sins. You might find yourself in a conversation with someone who's trying to understand eternal life with the Creator God. Know this. In the midst of those conversations, that conversation is not complete without the components these two components at center stage jesus was delivered to death for our transgressions and jesus was delivered from death for our justification it's the simplicity of verse 25 that's why it's the gospel in one verse and I know this is a simple message, especially if you're, you're church people and you've grown up in church. You're thinking right now, I know you're thinking this. I know this stuff, Mark. I got this stuff down. But hear this. Seven people in the services before you didn't know this stuff. The simplicity of this message makes it clear for everyone. doesn't matter where you live on the planet. doesn't matter what language you speak. You can understand this. So you and I are challenged this morning. We're we're challenged in Romans. Romans is God's record concerning Jesus. Just like all the other New Testament books, all the Old Testament books. And it's asking you this question this morning. Do you rely on Jesus as having died for your sins and as having been raised for your justification? It's a question for you. Do I believe this? Because Paul has demonstrated chapter 1, We've all got sin. Chapter 2, you can't earn justification with God through works. Chapter 3, he drove it home. Works won't do it. And now in chapter 4, he's showing us it's belief. So Romans has demonstrated for us that because of your belief, God can make you righteous. It leaves you with only one of two possible options. You either reject this flat out and say, this is not for me or you believe. And if you believe, God says, if you believe that my son paid the price for your redemption, you will be saved. It's a promise of God. You don't have to leave here today wondering. You don't have to leave here wondering, does this apply to me? I feel like I'm disqualified, like I've sinned too much. I've got too much baggage in my past. God says this is for everyone. I'm talking to you even if you feel dead inside right now. You might think I'm as dead as Abraham felt. 
There is nothing but death in me because of all my baggage. God says, I can bring life from that if you believe, even if you think you're completely worn out. And that even applies to the people who might be around you. In your social circle, you might have others around you who think it's absolutely irrational that you could become a child of promise, that you could become an inheritor of the kingdom of God. But I want you to know something, especially if you choose to come back here. Here at New Hope, we take God at his word. And his word says, I promise you, if you believe, I will rescue you. So I don't want to step into communion right now without inviting people to respond to this. Because for some individuals here in this auditorium right now, this might be the first time you've ever taken communion as a believer in Jesus Christ. So I'm going to ask every one of us to close our eyes and pray along with me. And I'm going to talk to those individuals who may never have given their life to Jesus Christ. This is your opportunity. You may want to yield your life right now. Father, I thank you for every person who's gathered in here. We're about to celebrate communion. But I ask that you would be incredibly close to those right now who are wondering, is this for me? Father, surround them with your arms, the comfort and the power of the Holy Spirit. Where there's a realization of a need to deal with sin and to have a brand new beginning, God, would you show that person that this is exactly what they need to put their belief in Jesus Christ? If that's you right now, I want everybody to keep their eyes closed. If that's you right now, I'm going to ask you to just utter these words back to God. You do it however you want. You can do it in the quietness of your breath. You just do it with your thought patterns in your minds. Just say this to the Father. God, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. And God, I believe that you raised him again that he was resurrected on the third day. Just tell him that. Say, Father, I want a brand new beginning. He loves you. He wants to hear this from you. God, I want a brand new beginning. Forgive me of my sins. I want Jesus to be my Lord. Just tell him that. Keep your eyes closed, everybody. Would you do that? If you just prayed that, would you raise your hand so I can pray for you? Okay, I see your hands. Father, I know that you see them. God, I know that you know these individuals by name. You know everything about them. So, Father, I pray for them specifically right now that they would discover what it is to walk in the forgiveness of Jesus. Remind them, Father, of who they are even when Satan comes around and tries to steal that promise and steal that joy by telling them that they they aren't saved. God, remind them that they gave their life to you. Grow these individuals, Father, in their walk with you. This is a brand new beginning, so God, we put them in your care and in your keeping. Father, for every one of us now who are about to lift the cup and to lift the bread, we pray that you would remind us of what Jesus did for us. Father, that we would celebrate and that we would become a witness to each other. We pray for your blessing upon communion right now. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Our tradition here at New Hope is very simple. It's to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and the instructions that Paul gave to the church about how to participate in communion. And there's something very specific here for believers. He gives us an instruction that applies directly 
to how we're supposed to do this. Now hear this from verse 23. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Here's your instructions. This is the reason why. For new hope, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you become a witness. It says you proclaim. You proclaim the Lord's death. Yep, we believe that he died on the cross. Don't stop there. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. To come again means he was resurrected from the dead. So he died from you for you and he was raised again for you for your justification. You're about to witness to the person on your right, on your left, the person behind you and in front of you. I'm a believer. You may not be comfortable in worship songs putting your hand up. You see people around the auditorium doing that. But you can do this. You can raise the cup and you can raise the bread and say, I believe. So for that reason, we get these really strong warnings in verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Here at New Hope, we allow time specifically for you to do that, to examine yourself. Talk to the Heavenly Father. Communion here is open to everyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ. You don't have to be a member of the church. We just want you to participate in this if you're a believer. And so talk to the Father right now. Examine yourself. See if there's anything you need to confess to Him. And when you are ready, come up to one of the tables in the back, up on the balcony, here in the front, and there will be someone to remind you, this is the body and the blood of Christ. Take it back to your seat and hold on to it, and I'll talk you through the rest. You're going to get to do that for a long, long time, we're told. A long, long time you get to celebrate who Jesus is. Those who have gone before you are doing it right now. You're going to join them one day. Jesus held up the cup and he held up the bread on the night that he was betrayed, Scripture says. And he said that the, the bread represents his body, which was broken and busted up for us. In the same meal, he held up a cup. We're told it's the third cup in the um, Jewish Passover. And, and this cup, we're told, he held it up and said, this represents my blood, which is shed for you. When you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. <coughs> Father, we thank you and praise you in the name of Jesus. We stand among believers who have just witnessed to each other who they are in you. We praise you for the sacrifice that was made, but also for the resurrection, the proof of our justification, that we can stand before you one day and be declared righteous in your sight. God, thank you. Thank you for the witness of this congregation. We praise you in the mighty name of our victorious, the matchless Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.